This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to the UC Washington Center, UCDC, uh, here in the heart of Washington D.C. Uh, this is the University of California's center where students, faculty, and others come do research and learn about the national government of the United States. We're really pleased here to have today Stan Collender, who's a graduate of the Goldman School of Public Policy and a world expert on the budget process. Uh, he's written uh, the Guide to the Federal Budget, one of the most frequently assigned texts and courses on the federal budget. And he's also been the editor of Capital Gains and Games, a blog that for many years was the central go-to place to learn about the federal budget. Uh, Stan is the guy that when people want to understand what's going on with the federal budget, they come to Stan. Yeah, but remember, it's not my fault. It's not your fault. Right. Yeah, well, and he's also constantly trying to explain why it's not maybe his fault, but it's just the way it is uh, with the federal budget. So how did you get so involved with the federal budget? What was your early career that led you to become such an expert in well, the field? it was actually before my early career. It was all GSPP's fault. Okay. Um, the dean of the school, when it first started, when I was going, was Aaron Moldowski, who at the time was the world's expert in the federal budget. He had written the politics of the budgetary process. Seminal research, but between my first and second year of graduate school, I had to do an internship. And Congress had just passed the Congressional Budget and Empowerment Control Act, had just created the House and Senate Budget Committees, and I figured I'd go to the Senate Budget Committee. I literally just showed up on the doorstep and said, here I am, because they had only been in existence a month, uh, for a month, so there was no one who had been there long, much longer than I would have been. So I thought it was a pretty helpful thing. Now, what helped me was that I got assigned to do defense budget analysis, having never even looked at a budget before. But halfway through the summer, the guy I was working for, the, the, the real defense budget analyst, got fired. Suddenly, I was the defense budget analyst for the Senate Budget Committee. Um, so that's the way it started. And then uh, a member of Congress I had worked for, a member of the House I had worked for, Elizabeth Holtzman from New York, had, got, uh, had gotten herself appointed to the House Budget Committee while I was in my second year of graduate school. So when I left, I came to do her work on the Budget Committee. And then it just blossomed from there. I started the newsletter. I wrote a book. I did a variety of things. And I got myself quoted a lot. And once you get quoted, they think you know what you're talking about. So what do you find fascinating about budgets? Why budgets? Not so much. It's just a lot of numbers, isn't it? Actually, the budget, the numbers are the least important part of the budget. Uh, in fact, I teach a class on the budget here in Washington. I don't even go through numbers. We don't go through projections or anything like that. It's, it's the politics. It's the process. It's how they're supposed to do something and how they actually get it done. Um, it explains so much of what's happening or not happening in Washington um, that I find it just fascinating. I mean, it, that's, the books I've written on this have not been about what something's going to cost. It's going to be why we came up with that estimate and how we did. Mm -hmm. When you go and look at a budget, what is the first thing you do? What, what, what do you, do you just start looking? You don't look at the numbers. So what do you look at? Well, no, look, when you first start looking at, at the president's budget when it comes out every year, there's one table to look at. It's the big macro table with the big numbers, total spending, total revenues, deficit, or surplus. Mm -hmm. You want to see where the trends are because now... That'll immediately tell you what the politics are likely to be. If the deficit's on its way down or on its way up, you know it's going to be a very different year than if it's the opposite. And so those are some of the tables that are up front in most budgets. There's a the little summary budget book that you can Well, get. actually, I There's a thousand-page budget, or maybe several there thousand. There are seven, several, excuse me, seven different books that make up the president's budget. Okay. One is like the Cliff Notes version. Right. That's what you were referring to. I never even look at that. Okay. Um, I tend to look directly at the president's budget. It's, it's called the Budget of the President of the United States. It's uh, about that thick, 
It's got all the tables and all the charts. And from there, I go directly to its different document called Historical Tables, which has no text, no narrative, just the tables themselves. And from three or four of the, these big macro tables, not getting into the details of the line items, you can pretty much figure out what the politics are going to be. Now, a lot of the politics you know in advance. Uh, uh, an Obama administration submitting a budget to a Republican Congress is going to get a very different re uh, re response than if he was submitting it to even one house of the same party. What I tell everybody who will listen to me is that federal budgeting, uh, which you would think is about numbers and about process, is really about emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it's, it's more an emotional process. It's more a political process. It's how does a member of Congress oppose spending but insist that his district or state or her district and state get, get more point. money. Yeah. Uh, so you wrote a blog post once, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in what you said, we should eliminate the president's budget. So you love budgets, but you want to eliminate the president's well, budget. I also said, and I testified this year in front of Congress, they should eliminate the, federal, the congressional budget process since no one's following it anyway. And the reason I said okay, that about are you, the, are you just trying to be... Uh, a little bit sarcastic, difficult, ironic, or what? No, it, it's after <laughs> watching this for 40 years, okay. which is hard for me to say and painful. Okay. But after watching this for 40 years, realizing that for all the best intentions of a congressional budget process, Congress isn't following it. And, the, and there are no penalties for not following it. So what do we do? Well, you know, the, up until the Congressional Budget and Impoundment Control Act in 74, there was no official budget process. There's no budget process mentioned in the Constitution. The assumption by the, the framers of the Constitution was that Congress and the President were going to do the right thing. That is, the country needed a budget, you'd do one every year. Instead, now that there's a requirement that they do it, they don't get it done. And the, and the voters don't seem to care because they keep returning the same people again and again and again. And as far as the President's budget is concerned, no one was reading it. This year, the President submitted a budget, spent millions of dollars at OMB and elsewhere putting it together, and then Congress refused even to hold hearings on it, refused to hold the OMB director, uh, have hearings, hold it with the OMB director testifying. So when I testified in May in front of the House and Senate Budget Committee, I basically said, how dare you? You invite me to testify, but you don't invite the OMB director? And I, I call that the uh, political equivalent of the Yiddish word chutzpah. Right. which means nerve. There was a bit of dust-up over that. Some people were a little annoyed, uh, certainly on the Republican side, with your claim that they weren't taking the budget seriously. Yeah, they were uh, not happy, um, which I considered to be a, a, a badge of honor, quite honestly. If they were happy with what I said, then I wasn't being provocative. But so what are we going to do? I mean, if, if I, I, I'm not sure you're completely serious about getting rid of the president's budget. I mean, and I would argue, by the way, aren't there some other advantages to putting together a president's budget that allows OMB to review with the agencies what they're doing, where they've been, where they're going, so that it's not just the document that gets presented to Congress that matters. It's the process through which the Office of Management and Budget goes through to create that budget that's important as well. Yeah, but there, it's very different to have to create a public document than doing the private work. If, if Congress is, first of all, as a taxpayer, if you're not going to pay any attention to it, why are you bothering to even print it up? Mm -hmm. right? why, you know, why are you bothering to put together testimony and do a variety of things that no one's going to pay any attention to? But, so yeah, the work has to get done. It has to get done in the executive branch. But if Congress isn't going to use it, if they're not going to pay any attention to it, then I want to wipe, I, there's no reason for Congress to do a budget. Remember, mm -hmm. I mean the President to do a budget, Congress isn't doing a budget. Mm -hmm. This year, the Senate Budget Committee didn't even bother to consider one. The House Budget Committee considered one, passed one, and then the full House never took it up on the floor. Okay, so no, you're going to have to help me here. So they, 
They didn't do a budget. So how does stuff keep getting funded? Well, all right, that's a rhetorical question. Yes. Right? All right, good. I just want to make sure. No, I no, I, 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 I think I know the answer, but you know it better than I do. I want to hear 70, yours. Seventy-five percent of the budget happens automatically. It's right. what's known as mandatory spending. Uh, mandatory spending doesn't mean it has to be spent. It just means it will continue until such time as Congress and the President decide to change it. Interest on the debt, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, some of those, those ongoing programs. 100% or almost 100% of the revenue code is the equivalent of mandatory spending. It just goes on and on and on. So every year when we hear about shutdowns and, and the Congress not doing what it's doing, it's really only paying attention to about $1.1 trillion of what's known as discretionary spending or appropriations. A little over half of that, 55% of that is defense, the rest is domestic spending. Um, but now, look, we should never say one, only $1.1 trillion, but it's about... What's the total budget right about now? About $4 trillion, a little bit less than $4 trillion. But it's only about 25% of everything Congress is going to spend. So when there's a government shutdown or when they're arguing about things like continuing resolutions or appropriations, the Congress and the president are only arguing about 25% of all spending. The rest of it is just going to happen automatically. But a lot of that 25% is stuff that really matters to Congress because it's defense spending, which in the end often ends up in their districts or doesn't end up in their districts. And the other stuff is, is things like the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, stuff which is relatively popular with voters because it's, especially National Institutes of Health, because it's trying to cure diseases and get rid of cancer. Sure, and, and it also like includes the Veterans Administration, Veterans the Energy Department, student loans, student something loans. that I'm sure no one that we're talking to cares about. Right, right. Um, it includes a lot of things that people care about. In fact, the fact that it's remained over the years, all this domestic spending shows that it, it, it's more popular than people think. And yet when Congress talks about reducing the budget, they typically only talk about the domestic part. It's only about $450, $500 billion. Um, in other words, we've got a $550 billion deficit. In other words, we could eliminate the entire domestic part of the budget, domestic part of the government. Everything including federal... Discretionary domestic part of right, the budget. Right, right. Everything including federal jails, federal judges, uh, you know, FBI, the IRS. I mean, every, all the basic nuts and bolts of the government. And you'd still have a deficit, basically. It'd be smaller... But you'd also be reducing economic activity in a variety of ways and eliminating a lot of the things that people care about, national parks. Whenever there's a government shutdown, the thing that's affected most immediately are national parks because you can't get into Yosemite because the grass isn't allowed to grow. So what kind of budget process should we have? I mean, is there any hope here or do we just have to live with a completely broken process well, that's going to go on with continuing resolutions and craziness? Well, basically, I mean, I hate to sound so fatalistic, but there isn't a lot of hope at the moment. Um, if Congress isn't following the current rules, there are no rules that they're going to follow and the other rules they're going to follow if they don't want to. Um, what I told the House and Senate Budget Committee separately was that it's not a question of rules, it's a question of incentives. And right now, there is no incentive to pass a budget with a deficit, even a deficit that's smaller. Mm -hmm. In fact, the congressional budget process, again, 74, it was enacted, went into, into place in 76. The congressional budget process was in trouble almost from the first year. Members of Congress realized, well, we wanted to vote for a process so it looked like we were being responsible, but wait a minute, we got to vote for a budget, a whole budget with a deficit in it? And it was a lot smaller. So is it then. the fear of the part of the members of Congress that they're going to end up having to vote for a budget with a deficit and then be held accountable by their constituents? Is that the reason they don't want to well, do it? Well, it's partly that. Um, those who are against deficit spending don't want to get, go, in, go on record in favor of even a smaller deficit. Um, those, they, they're people against spending who don't want to vote for spending bills. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so there are people, there are many members of Congress don't want to vote for an increase in the debt ceiling when it's necessary, even though they're willing to vote for the programs that require the government to borrow more money. I mean, it's, it's, there is nothing rational about this, mm-hmm. nothing rational at all. Do you know of incentives we could put in place that would help? No, not really. I mean, we, there, there's been some talk, you remember several years ago, there was a no budget, no pay provision mm-hmm. that withheld the pay for, or was threatening to withhold the pay for members of Congress because according to the Constitution, you can't really cut it. That didn't work. Most members of Congress are remarkably uh, wealthy or at least more wealthier than... Yeah, there's some evidence, though, it did work in California when there was a stipulation in the attempt, successful attempt to try to get budget bills done on time which basically changed the percentage of people who had to vote in favor of a budget, reduced it to just a simple majority, but also had a provision in there that for every day after the, the due date, basically July 1st, that there would be a reduction in members' pay. And there is some thinking that that actually had an impact well, in California. Maybe that's because California legislators are not as wealthy as members of Congress. Well, also, it's, it's legal in California. It's, it's unconstitutional at, at the federal level. Um, so, think so, and, and unconstitutional in the sense that you can just withhold it for a while, but you can't. You, you have to actually actually have to pay the members. You cannot reduce their pay during a session. Okay. Um, there's been some talk about re- reducing or, or stopping to pay staff. Now, staff are not wealthy. Yeah. Um, and chances are, you'd have a lot more trouble attracting people to work on Capitol Hill under the circumstances. But the bottom line incentive: if 95 or 90 percent of all incumbents get reelected, no matter what they do. If their constituents don't care whether they pass a budget or don't pass a debt ceiling or shut down the government, they're going to get reelected anyway. There is no effective incentive to give members of Congress. Mm-hmm. They think they're, they're impervious. So you should be asking me now, well, what about term limits? Okay, what about term limits? Thank you for asking. It's a great <laughs> question. Um, the thing about term limits is that it, it, it's really, and it's been shown this in state legislatures around the country, it really doesn't help when the incumbent is trying to pass that district on to his or her successor in the same party. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to preserve the district for that party, then the fact that it's not, it's not, it's Joe Smith isn't running for re-election, but John Smith is, makes no difference whatsoever. So they still have the same disincentive to do anything. Right. So what are the pernicious effects of our current budgeting process? What do you think are the major distortions that we're seeing in the whole budgets? Well, there are two big ones, right? First of all, um, the Federal Reserve, the mon- monetary policy, is basically the only economic game in town at the moment. Okay, it let's unpack that a bit, because we'll come to the second one in a minute. But that's a really important point. So what does that mean? So what's the alternative to monetary policy? Well, fiscal, I was going to get there. Oh, at okay. least give me a sure. chance. <laughs> um, the alternative to monetary policy is fiscal policy. That is doing things through the budget, where the government takes money into or put, takes money out of the economy, as opposed to the Federal Reserve increasing or decreasing So this could rate. be like a big infrastructure uh, building uh, program yeah. would be a, a, a stimulus package. Yeah, or it could size. be the opposite. That is, if, if the economy is overheating, then you might increase taxes or cut spending a little bit or something. Mm-hmm. But for the last four, five, six years from now, recently anyway, the Fed has been the only game in town with its increasing, in, increasing or decreasing interest rates. And frankly, they will be the first to admit they're running out of tools. So say a little more about that. Well, they are running out of tools because well, they you, have... Well, you can't lower interest rates below zero. Because I mean, they've gotten so near zero now that, right. that you can't go below zero. Actually, there are... There are ways oh, There are ways it. you could do that, but it's complicated. And it's also extremely controversial. Yeah. Uh, we create all kinds of distortions in the economy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Janet Yellen, uh, the, the Fed Federal chair, Reserve, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Dr. Fisher, the, the vice chair, have all been saying and making speeches saying it's time for fiscal policy to start doing anything. Mm-hmm. But because of the, uh, 
stalemate, the disruptions in Congress, the inability to do anything on the budget or to agree on anything on the budget, the budget has become a non-existent economic tool. Um, as a result, one of the reasons the economy has been growing so slowly over the last five, six, seven years, one of the reasons the economy has been, the, the recovery has been so slow is that fiscal policy has played no role and in many cases has been doing the opposite of what the Fed has been trying to do with mm -hmm. interest rates. Mm -hmm. So this, but can I go to the second problem? Yeah, go to the oh, second thank problem. Thank you. The second problem is that the last time we had a, a real budget that was actually implemented was five, six, seven years ago. That was based on an, an assessment of the economy from a year earlier. So we're now on a, on a kind of automatic pilot basis mm -hmm. implementing a budget that, has no, that, that is only has a relationship to the economy and what the economy needs by accident. Mm -hmm. We're still implementing policies and priorities that from five, six, seven years ago. So one of the complaints has been, too, that with the sequestration process and other things is that we're making decisions automatically. And maybe this was your point about that we're sort of dealing with a set of uh, programmatic uh, approaches that were set in stone four, five, six years ago. Or in the case of Social Security and Medicare, Social Security in the 30s. Right, right. 80 years ago and Medicare in the 60s. So and these so things are just going we're just on. We're not reviewing them. Right. So talk a little bit. You, you mentioned Social Security and Medicare. What should be our longer-term approach to entitlements? What should we be thinking about? Do we need to cut them back? Well, need is, is, not, is a loaded question, mm -hmm. loaded term. Um, if you look at the amount of spending we're going to be doing, the spending is going up as more people are eligible for Social Security and Medicare. As the cost of health care go up and Medicare costs more, Medicaid the same way. Um, the question in my mind with both Medicare and Social Security is did we make a commitment to the people who were getting them mm -hmm. and are we required to keep that commitment? All right. If that's the case, then we either have to figure out a way to cut other things to pay for them, to convince people that the benefits they're getting are too rich for, the, for what we can afford, or to tax more to pay for. Mm -hmm. um, but. But the, the first question is, how real was this commitment? When Social Security was passed, when, when somebody retired, I'm, I'm about to retire within a year, I mean, I've been counting on Social Security because that's what I was told was always coming. Are you telling me now we can't afford it? We can definitely afford it. The question is, how do we want to pay for it? So, yes, so spending on, on entitlements, on mandatory spending is going up. Spending on interest on the debt is going to be going up dramatically as interest rates rise. Um, or we, we can't cut that back, but we've already made a commitment to the people that we borrowed the money from, the bondholders, that we're going to pay them back. So what are we going to do here? You know, Donald Trump said, I'm going to negotiate for 90 cents on the dollar or something like that. That's not going to happen. But well, the whole, Why not? Why, why is that Because, not well, first of all, no, it would be one thing if the government didn't have to keep borrowing. But, if, if they, if they, but, but because we're running a deficit... Right. Um, the government would have to go back into the bond market the next day after Which we just gave happy about what just happened. Not just not happy, they demand a, a risk premium for not getting their money back. Now remember, the United States is one of the few countries in its history that's never missed a payment on its debt. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons that, that the Treasury borrows at such low amounts. So if we're going to change that, mm -hmm. then we better be prepared for much higher interest rates and much higher interest payments. Remember, 55% of the U.S. debt rolls over at least once every year. So the government's on essentially the largest one-year adjustable rate mortgage in history. So if interest rates rise by one or two percentage points, uh, it's going to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. But the, let's go back to your basic question, mandatory spending. Mandatory spending is definitely going up. Unless 
something happens that we're not expecting. Some, some, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not suggesting this, but let me just, as a hypothetical example, suppose there's a new AIDS-like like disease that only hits people over 65 and wipe out, wipes out half the population. All right? Terrible situation, but it would completely change the projections for Social Security and Medicare. Assuming something that crisis-laden doesn't happen, then we've made the commitment, we've known that Social Security and Medicare was going up pretty substantially, as Medicaid has. Um, we've always known it. So the question we're facing in the United States, simply as far as the biggest budget question is, are we going to tax more or are we going to stop doing something? Now, I don't mean, it's, this is not a question of waste, fraud, and abuse. You know, there isn't $500 billion of waste, fraud, and abuse in the budget unless you decide that something like the Department of Agriculture is now waste, fraud, and abuse. That is, we no longer need a Department of Agriculture to deal with a a sector of the economy that's a fraction of what it was when the department was created. Mm -hmm. So those are the big questions that are coming. It's not the kind of question we typically deal with until there's a crisis situation. But let me ask you, and this is more in the realm of politics, but you've already said that the budget document is a political document. We're going through an election right now where it's clear there's a part of the Republican Party, Trump supporters, who are really concerned about their economic future and who, for example, want to keep their Medicare, want to keep their Social Security. Yep. Donald Trump promises them that he will make sure that he preserves those and things. And cut their taxes. And, and cut their taxes. But it's also the case that I think they want some dignity and some job opportunities and in the end, perhaps want government to do something to help them because they feel that lots of other groups have been helped, but they haven't been. Is it possible that that could be something that could move the Tea Party people or at least the rest of the Republican Party to start to see that maybe they have to think about something more than simply cutting taxes? Well, look, the short answer is no, and the longer answer is I don't think, I haven't seen anything that would indicate that that's the case. Um, it's not just that they want to keep the benefit, they want the government to do something for them, they want to stop doing it for someone else. All right, they want to deny benefits for somebody else, or they, they, want, they want spending not to be spent, if you're in Iowa, you don't want spending in New York, you want spending in Iowa. Mm-hmm. So farmers in the Midwest or, 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 or in, you know, in South Dakota, North Dakota, don't understand why there's money spent on mass trans- transit operating assistance in big cities. Mm-hmm. People in big cities don't understand why with there's agricultural price supports that's driving up the price of their bread in the Midwest. But let me ask you, suppose Donald Trump became president. Is there a chance then that because he would have a different set of priorities and maybe be more favorable towards government, at least insofar as he said he believes Medicare and Social Security should be preserved, that that separates him from maybe a Paul Ryan, that that might lead to a different... Republican Yeah, I, I find it hard to believe that, that a Trump-led White House would compromise with Democrats. Uh, that's not his constituency. That's not his base. But you're thinking politically. Uh, my understanding of Donald Trump is he makes deals. If you ask him, he does. But, you know, it, it's, it's also not clear that Democrats would be willing to make deals with him. I, I think we're pretty much frozen in place in the absence of a crisis. And I don't know what kind of crisis it would be because we have to be because we've got crisis fatigue in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have to be a pretty bad, bad crisis, pretty deep crisis, pretty, pretty all-enveloping crisis to allow the typical politician to move from his or her position to something that he told his or her constituents they wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the arc of your career. You've become the go-to person with respect to the federal budget in Washington, D.C. How does that feel you look back upon it? And what's been the, the joy and what's been maybe the downside of it? What are the, the ups and downs of being Mr. Budget? Um, well, the, 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 one of the ups is that it's always an issue. Uh, 
mm -hmm. right? It, it, so th there's always a demand for it in, in some form. Um, it, it's something that... And what form does that take? That takes Well, it's a variety of things. It's, it's sitting here with you. It's being on Bloomberg television. Mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, it's writing a, a blog for Forbes, which I do now. Um, it's making 100 speeches a year to a variety of different audiences. It's very ego-fulfilling. I used to want to be a comedian. I, I, I was a stand-up comedian for a while. I wanted to be an actor. Okay. So this gives me a lot of that. Instead, you became a budget expert. I think that's very interesting. And, and I From stand-up comedian to budget expert. It's just a question who's writing the script. I mean, to some extent, just say the word federal budget, and that brings a laugh. Or it empties the house, one yeah, of the right. two, right? <laughs> right. Um, but if you can be funny, which I try to do with the federal budget, or at least make it be sarcastic about it, you, you get an audience that goes, what? I mean, I did a presentation called Franken Budget. That was all about, and or I did, I you know, it was a big PowerPoint with music and things, but it was all about a story about uh, how crazy the budget was and how much, how much of a Frankenstein's monster it was, and it got tremendous reviews. Um, my career is interesting because it's nothing that I had ever planned. I mean, you've got to understand that I was the kid in in elementary school couldn't do multiplication tables, and his <laughs> his parents had to sit opposite. I mean, my my mother and father sat opposite me with flashcards after dinner, right? So now here, I mean, I and I couldn't write, I couldn't spell. Well, now I've got spell check and I've got, you know, Excel and things like that. But the idea that someone like me who couldn't do multiplication tables is, is an expert on the budget is just a remarkable kind of situation. But what, what I've taken it in a variety of different places. I, was this, I dealt with the budget at Pricewaterhouse, the federal budget. I now do it for a public relations firm. Um, but, you, you, you know, what you find is that clients have lots of concerns about it, lots of interest in it. Um, so it's... it's there are some people who like to sit at the desk and crunch numbers. I'm not one of those, but there are places for them with the budget and budgeting. Um, the interesting thing from all of the things about it is it's not just that I know the budget, I can, but it's that I can communicate about it. Right. And, and to, just to, to blow some smoke in your direction, this was something I learned at the Graduate School of Public Policy, the Goldwyn School now. Um, it was a professor of mine in, in one of my earliest classes who said, Look, it's not just that you, know, you don't need to just know the policy. You need to be able to communicate it. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, the way you communicate it will be more important than, than, what, you're, than what you're communicating. Um, that's, that was a lesson I learned early, and, and it stayed with me forever. I mean, I now help other people because I'm an executive vice president in a public relations firm communicate on complicated economic and financial issues. Um, to be able to go on at CNBC and talk about it in a way that the average person would mm -hmm. understand it. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's what's, what's, what's made, I think, the career remarkable, is that um, I'm taking a complicated, complex, you know, mm -hmm. subject and, and being able to make it so that, that I, I, you know, so that people can understand what I'm talking about. There's romance in budgets. There's excitement in budgets, and I think that's what you do so well. So it's been great having you. Wait, can I quote you on that? Romance in budgets? Romance in budgets. Uh, only if you're dating someone in your office. Right? Okay. <laughs> Otherwise not? Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Stan Collender.